Hey everyone, welcome to another episode. I am your host, Marla Martinson, and I have a really fun topic today. We're going to be talking about NDEs, near-death experiences with Barbara Bartolome. Welcome, Barbara. Yay, you got it, Marla. Hi, everyone. All right, so Barbara, welcome. Uh, listen, I we met in person a few years back, and you have such an amazing story. Um Let's hear it. Let's hear what happened to you that you kind of got to see the other side, that other dimension and the changes that came in your life. And uh, yeah, just start from the get go. Okay. Well, I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest where you are, but I called it North wet because oh. <laughs> of the rain and the moisture. And um, when I was young, I was uh, very, very, um, there were lots of times where these things would happen where my mom would look at me sideways. Out of our five kids, she thought I was like the interesting one. And I would know things were going to happen before they happened, etc. And um, I ended up moving down to Santa Barbara when I was about 27 years old. And I married someone who I met up in, in Oregon. Um, he was from Santa Barbara. And um, he invited me when he was moving back down to come down and marry him. He'd been dating me for six months or something. And so I went ahead and moved down and I married him. I had already had um, a marriage that had failed after about three years. And I had a person that I had married and I had a little son. And um, so I brought my little son down to Santa Barbara and we married and about three to six months after the marriage, I started recognizing really rough signs of abuse. Mm -hmm. And he was manipulative, controlling. Uh, he was an engineer. I had to do everything the way that he wanted it to be done. If I didn't put something away the way he wanted it, you know, he would blow up. Um, I think he was under a lot of stress at his work. He had a previous problem. I think during his um, early years with his father, maybe being abusive, I wasn't quite sure on what happened with that, but I started realizing that I was in a big problem. And uh, what ended up happening was that he hurt my back and I had a ruptured disc in my lower spine in my L5 S1. So the first doctor that I went to, um, I was 31 at the time. I just had a little baby, five-month-old little girl with him. And uh, it was December of 1987. And the first doctor that I saw actually said that I would never walk again, that I had uh, ruptured this disc and that it wasn't able to be fixed and that the sciatic situation in my leg was so traumatic that it wasn't going to be helped. So... Um, Friends of mine here in Santa Barbara said, no, 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 you, you need to go to a neurosurgeon. You need to have another evaluation. So I did that. And that neurosurgeon said, oh, I can fix this really cocky like. And of course, I wanted to believe that. So I went ahead and he scheduled surgery for me. But the night before the surgery, um, he and another doctor who was an orthopedic surgeon decided that I needed a myelogram, which is injecting iodine dye into your spinal cord to see when they tip the table, the x-ray table that you're on, so that the dye flows down your spinal cord to see if there are any chips in your spinal cord. Because if the disc blew out and chipped the spinal cord, it was going to be a bigger deal. 
So they told me um, after they'd injected the dye into my back of my neck, they x-ray techs told me you have to hold completely still during this entire procedure because you'll have headaches for months afterwards if you don't. Well, I'm a really follow the rules kind of girl. And I laid there on the table and they started moving the table. They were, one of the x-ray techs was pushing a button. The other one was in, in front of a monitor. And both of the doctors, the neurosurgeon, the orthopedic surgeon were leaning against a wall and they were talking to each other and they just were waiting to see what the results were of the test. And there was also a nurse in the room. And uh, I started feeling, the minute the table started moving, I started feeling kind of funny. And I, the two x-ray techs were talking to each other and I didn't want to interrupt them. So I laid there on the table and I felt funny, like I was going to faint. And um, after about maybe two minutes um, of the table moving, I realized, you know what, this, this isn't, this can't be right. I, I'm going to faint. I, I know I need to talk to him and tell him. So by the time I realized that I should actually interrupt them, I couldn't speak. I couldn't. I could think, but I couldn't get my mouth to move right. And then I also couldn't reach my hand out. And soon within 30 seconds of that time, I started hyperventilating, which caused them to notice that something was wrong. So the x-ray tech that had his finger on the button, he leaned over my face and saw that my eyes were rolling back in my head and I was hyperventilating. So he leaned back to see where his thumb was on the side of the x-ray table and uh, he made this face like, oh, my God. And um, that was the last thing that I saw. I shut my eyes. And in the next second, I was up on the ceiling. And it literally felt like I had a head, but there wasn't any head up there, obviously. I was all the way on the table. But it felt like I reached a perimeter, a barrier that um, I couldn't go past. And I was up, like, against the ceiling. So I felt immediately all of the strain and worry and scaredness that I was feeling, hyper hypertension that I was feeling in my body, gone. And it felt like I was wrapped in this wonderfully warm blanket of love and acceptance. And I just felt totally fine. And I looked down and I said, huh, if I'm up here and my body's down there and he's calling code blue, I think I just died. And right when I said that, I felt and realized that there was someone next to me. And I never looked to see if there was any kind of a visual or anything. I felt that I knew that being so incredibly deeply that it felt like beyond my entire life to that point, it was someone that had known me even prior to that and that I'd known them. And so for me, it felt kind of like what I would think God would feel like. It felt eternal. It felt loving. It felt completely the most amazing, beautiful feeling. And I began to talk to him in my head and say very calmly, I really need to go back into my life. I need to be able to protect my children in this situation. If I don't go back, they're not going to grow up to be the good human beings they're capable of being with what they're going to face. I need to go back to protect them. So I was calmly saying that, of course, down below, 
The room had gone into panic mode. The doctors were screaming out orders. This uh, lady with an oxygen cart came in. Um, they had hooked up. They had been doing CPR and doing mouth-to-mouth -mouth with my chest compressions, but then they stopped doing the mouth-to-mouth -mouth and they just, the two x-ray techs just switched off every two minutes or so with chest compressions. And the lady at the, the lady that was the nurse that had been in there, she was calling on the phone for the defib unit screaming stat. And um, it was crazy and it was loud and noisy and I just actually didn't like it. And um, I was, you know, calmly talking to this being and watching all this craziness down below. And um, I would say about eight to 10 minutes went by Um they got the oxygen card in there. Then this man came in with a heart monitor and I didn't know what that was. It was just a box that he set on the shelf next to the x-ray table that I was on. And he was standing there peeling these white tabs and putting them on my, my body on my chest up here. And I looked down in the midst of talking to that being and said, I understand everything else, but what is that he's doing? Mm -hmm. And the second that I asked that, I was moved down in front of the box and there was a dark green glass um, like a rectangle at the top of the front of the box with a bunch of dials and things. And I watched his hand go between my vision and the box and he flicked a toggle switch on the side of the box. And then a little white light lit up inside the green glass area and it started going straight across the screen and it was making this monotone sound well I'd never seen a heart monitor I didn't watch tv much and I just didn't that wasn't ever in my uh, knowledge base and so I um, watched the little white light go across the screen and I was right in front of the box and I was trying to figure out what it was and the second time it passed again all the way across the screen I still didn't figure it out and the third time it started to go across the screen, all of a sudden it hit me and I went, oh, oh, it's supposed to be going up and down. That's a heart monitor. And the second that I thought that I was moved back up on the ceiling next to the being and I continued to, you know, ask to go back. Well, about um, a few minutes later, then the neurosurgeon said to the orthopedic surgeon, I was watching it all down below and up on the ceiling still again. And he said, too much time has passed. She's going to be brain dead. We need to do something. Mm -hmm. And so then the orthopedic surgeon said, stand clear. And the people that were around the table, the nurse, the x-ray techs, everybody kind of backed away from the table. And he took two steps forward, took his arm from behind his back, swung it up over his head and pounded it on my chest. And I found out years later, that's called a precardial thump. It's done as a last ditch effort to restart a heart when they don't have a defib in there. And it's supposed to shock your heart, hopefully, and restart it. It very rarely works. <laughs> From what I've read, very rarely works. Well, it didn't work on that first blow. And uh, up on the ceiling, though, the being finally spoke to me. Mm -hmm. And in this beautiful voice, so calm and so loving, it said, but if you go back, you'll still be in your marriage. What will you do? Mm -hmm. And all these little flashes of moments that I had lived through, these memories of all these incidents of the injuries and things that he had been doing to me flashed 
just flash, 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 flash. And it was reminding me of all this stuff. And after they flashed, I was given the time to think about all the things that I, I thought about all the things I'd done to try to help him change his behaviors. And from a marriage family therapist to a pastor of a church, to writing a very long letter stating I wasn't going to take any more abuse to moving away from him for a year and telling him that when he had counseling and got the situation, you know, cleaned up that I would come back. But then he lied to me and told me that he'd had the counseling, that he was never going to do it again. And of course, when I moved back in, it just took a while longer for him to then blow up another time. And he continued to do it. So saw all that. And then I said to the being, if you let me go back, I promise you, I'll get strong enough to leave him. Because I realized it wasn't him that was going to be able to change. It needed to be me. I needed to choose a different path. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up, um, the second that I said the word him at the end of that sentence, the doctor did the second precardial thump and struck my chest a second time and my eyes up on the ceiling shut and I opened them and I was back in my body and his fist was right there on my chest and he was just lifting it off and he looked in my face. I had the oxygen mask on and I looked at him and I said, I think he was startled that I restarted myself, that he would come back into my body. And I said, what just happened into the oxygen mask? And the nurse leaned over me and said, stop, don't talk. We need to stabilize you. And so I'm sitting there with the oxygen mask on for another 20 minutes. And finally, they take it off after they've done whatever they needed to do to stabilize me. And the second that they take it off, I said, the neurosurgeon, the orthopedic surgeon was standing right next to the table, as was everybody else was in the room watching me. And I said, what just happened? I was up on the ceiling watching everything. What just happened? And the neurosurgeon goes, oh, brother. So then I said, no, I'm telling you the truth. She was on the phone calling for the defib unit. That lady brought in the oxygen cart. That man brought in the heart monitor. I watched it flatlining. These two guys were doing CPR on me until the oxygen cart came in. They stopped doing the blowing. Then they just switched off every couple minutes. And you guys were calling out all the shots. And while I said that, the neurosurgeon clenched his hands like this. And he pulled them up next to his body and had this terrible look on his face. And he was standing right next to the table. And he goes, I am not going to stand here and listen to this. And he storms out of the room. Wow. That was really good because then the orthopedic surgeon had the freedom then to take my hand and say, tell me, what did it feel like? What happened? Tell me again what you saw. And he validated with me everything that happened that, you know, he knew that I had not been in my body and I'd been watching it from above. So did everybody else in the room. But when they put me on a gurney and they sent me up to my room to stay overnight for the surgery the next morning at 7 a.m., Not a single person for the next four days in the hospital would say a single thing to me about what had happened. And I'm sure they were worried about that I would sue them since it was a medical error. Yeah, I I didn't have the capacity to sue them. I had no support system and that was not going to happen. But no one would talk to me about it. And so when I had the surgery the next morning, the neurosurgeon, orthopedic surgeon started to come into the recovery area. And as they were walking towards the bed that I was laying on, I said, can you please, I want to know what happened last night. And 
the neurosurgeon put his hand out like this, you know, and he said, I am not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about your surgery. Mm-hmm. So when I told my then husband that afternoon what had happened, he completely closed me down by saying, well, that couldn't have happened. You probably hallucinated it. Mm-hmm. Well, I've never done drugs. I don't drink alcohol. I have been the good kid because my mom was a police officer officer in Salem, Oregon, and used to sh- tell me she'd shoot my butt off if I was bad. So I wasn't bad. So I didn't know what to think of the whole situation, and I just internalized it. And it was still as fresh for me years later when I thought about it as the day it happened. And even when I talk about it today, I can actually shut my eyes and look down and like see the things inside the room and see the situation that went on. It's pretty, it's the clearest memory that I have in my life. So what ended up happening was that um, for 12 years or so, I didn't talk to anybody about it. I didn't tell my family about it. Um, My husband never mentioned it to me again. Um, He just thought I'd hallucinated it. So I kept it really cherished inside my heart, though, and it meant a lot to me. And um, when a friend of mine who was a nurse at the hospital um, was telling me at my daughter's gymnastics practice, her daughter was there, too. She was telling me that her mom was um, going to be dying that week, um, that she was really, you know, concerned and worried about it and everything. I decided that that was the person that I would tell the information to about my NDE And I thought it would help her to understand a little bit more about death and not worry about her mom's outcome as much. And um, she really was appreciative. And she ended up telling me that it was called a near-death experience. And I'd never heard that term before. Of course, there wasn't any online internet to be able to look up stuff in 1987 for me to research this. So I, you know, didn't think I should go to the library and say, hey, you know, when somebody dies, what do you, you know, do you have any books on that? You know, so I, I never researched it until um, my friend told me what it was called. And then I went online, found the IANS organization, found the ENDERF organization. And IANS is International Association for Near-Death Studies. And ENDERF is Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. And both of them are really super wonderful groups uh, in the United States and beyond. And they help people who have had near-death experiences to acclimate to their experiences. So many years later, I ended up starting a group here in Santa Barbara. And now I'm considered the largest group um, on the West Coast for IANS. And we have a monthly meeting and I bring in speakers and we have Prior to COVID, we would have 100 to 150 people, but now after COVID, we're, we're building it back up again. We're like 60 to 80 people are showing up at our meetings now, but people are very interested in this subject and uh, the NDEs help people to understand what happens when someone dies and what um, their, their grief is reduced because they understand that the soul continues on beyond Um, death and that yes the person may not be here but they are in another location that as far as I'm concerned we can you know actually connect with that other side and so I 
I feel like when I tell my story, I'm giving a really good gift out to people in the world. And I'm hoping that it helps people with issues about death and issues about grief. And so I do a lot of podcasts and I've been on the NBC Today show. They came and interviewed me here in Santa Barbara and also U.S. News and World Report did a wonderful article about my near-death experience with two doctors validating that, yes, NDEs are real. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel that this is what my purpose in my life is. And um, it really was interesting because many years later, after that happened, I was 55 years old and I went to one of the conferences for IANS and I was listening to one of the guest speakers, which was PMH Atwater, and she's written about five books on NDEs. I've, I've interviewed she, her for my show. Yeah, I'll put the link guys to that. She's wonderful person. She's a wonderful friend. And so I didn't really know her very well at that point. And so I went up to her after her talk and I said, you know, she was talking about after effects. Mm -hmm. And I, I went up to her and I said, you know, I had my near-death experience at age 31, but the after effects that you're mentioning validate all the way back to my early childhood. Well, so I don't understand why would I have those after effects all the way through? Right. And she took my hand. She was so gentle. And she said, you know, I think you should talk to your family because you may have had something that happened to you when you were either born or when you were young that you don't remember. And so speak with your family about it. Well, then I thought, okay, my parents are both deceased. So my oldest brother is 10 years older than me. And we were just happened about a month later to be going up to have dinner with him in Oregon. And so I thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. And he had never told him about my NDE. So I thought, I don't want to tell him about the NDE and kind of color what he's going to say. So I'm going to say, <clears throat> Brad, I am doing a little book that I'm going to keep in my purse of all my background history of my medical, my vaccinations, everything. And um, I'm going to go all the way back to my birth. So I remember when I did this when I was young and I remember when I got hurt here, um, you know, is there anything else that you want to add in there that I should put in there? And at the time we were going into the restaurant and he said, no, I, I can't think of anything. And so we went in, had a wonderful dinner and we were outside with his wife and his daughter and my husband afterwards. And all of a sudden he calmed and he said, Barb, and he put his hand on my arm and Victor, my husband was standing right next to him. And he said, there's something I need to tell you that I always knew that I should tell you, but I, the parents always said never to mention it to you, never to say anything. He said, when you were 18 months old, you had a really high fever. You went into convulsions and you stopped breathing. Mm -hmm. And he said that dad called the fire department, which was like 911 back in 1958. Yeah. And they told um, my dad to yell to my mom to submerse my body in tepid bath water and then to add ice cubes to slowly lower my body temperature while the ambulance was on its way. Because if they put all the ice cubes in and then put my body in, then that would be a shock for my body and it would be worse for my whole system. So my mom was in crying over the top of me and doing that. And she had sent both of my brothers over to the neighbor's houses to get more ice because, you know, there were no automatic ice makers back then. And, uh, so my brother came back from getting the ice from the neighbor and he said he stood in the doorway and handed the bag of ice to my mom and watched. And he said, I was soft purple. 
He said, I was lifeless, not breathing. Mom was crying and crying and crying over the top of me. Dad was on the phone yelling and, you know, get the ambulance over here now, you know. And and he said, all in the midst of all of that, he said, all of a sudden, you came back to life. He said, you all of a sudden arched your back backwards and threw your head back. And he said, you took in this deep breath. And then he said, you started crying and you turned from purple to bright red again because you were still feet your body was still feverish but he said he's never so happy to see the little you know bratty redhead that was his little sister come you know back and start crying he said he was really relieved and my older sister remembers the incident as well so it wasn't just my brother uh it was my older sister also who validated it so um that was really helpful to me because i'd had all these incidents and i was young and growing up and teenager and everything where all these weird things would happen where I would know what was going to happen ahead of time or I would have this amazing unfolding of an incident that people around me would go how did you just do that you know so it it was kind of a little on the freaky side for me too so it was um, wonderful to find out that I'd had that early NDE because it answered a lot of questions for me. Well, can so, you give an example of one of those freaky things that happened? That oh, I can give you tons of examples. So one of my youngest ones was um, when I was five years old, I was walking with my mom and she was a very strong, powerful woman. And uh, we had five kids. And so I had a little sister and uh, she was three and I was five. And we were standing at a street corner in Salem, Oregon. And the big rule was when mom was holding on to your hand and you were at the street corner, you did not let go of her hand. So I did that and I covered my face and I was sitting there covering my face, you know, looking scared. And my mom looked, turned and looked and said, what, what are you doing? And I, through my hand said, they're going to crash. And right then behind us, a car came through the intersection and ran the red light and crashed into a car that was in the intersection and pushed it farther away from us. Mm -hmm. And my mom was completely freaked out, let go of my little sister and then took my shoulders and she shook me and she said, don't you ever tell anyone that you can do that. Don't you ever talk about that. So it was upsetting to her. Um, When I was um, about 11 years old, my mom got a telephone call that my grandfather had died and she was on the phone in the living room. We didn't know why she was crying. And my older sister and my younger sister and I were standing there waiting for her to get off the phone. And when she hung up, she turned to us and she said that grandpa was dead. Well, my older sister burst into tears and my younger sister burst into tears. I was about 11 years old at the time. And I just had this look of, And my mom looked at me in her upset and my older sister, she would be in about 15. And they both looked at me and my mom said, what is wrong with you? Did you not love grandpa? And I realized that what I had done was not the right thing I should have done. I should have cried. So I started pretending like I was crying. Mm -hmm. But in my heart, I knew grandpa had gone home. And I knew that grandpa was fine and that it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And somehow 
that resonated in that moment that, oh, good, he gets to go home. Home's beautiful. And so it didn't go well with my mom and my sister, that was for sure. And then when I was 17, I was riding my bike across a bridge in in Salem to go. I worked at the um, newspaper. I was a photographer intern. And I was very proud of that because I loved photography. And uh, I was riding my bike. And as I was riding my 10 feet across this bridge, it had a really um, thin sidewalk. And normally everybody always traveled on the other bridge. There were two bridges that went from West Salem over to downtown Salem. But uh, for some reason, I had chosen the other bridge that day and it had this really thin sidewalk. And I was riding along and all of a sudden I started feeling this pressure on the back of my head like someone was pushing my head very strongly down. And I was, you know, getting further and further down and I was over my handlebars of my bike. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to look like one of those 10 year olds that ride their bike like this. And I was fighting it and just not wanting to go down over my handlebars. And just as I got all the way down as far as I could, this big truck went rumbling by and it had this extended mirror and it literally brushed the back of my head. So the mirror came from behind and just went like this. And then I raised it, the re, the pressure was released immediately and I raised my head and I watched as the mirror and the truck, you know, receded, went, continued to go. And I realized in that moment that if I'd been sitting upright, I would have been hit in the top of my back or the back of my head with that mirror and probably would have ended up underneath the back tires of that truck. And I realized my life had just been saved by someone on the other side. And I stopped my bike. I started crying and I looked over the side of the bridge so that the people going by wouldn't see that I was crying. It just looked like I was looking at the river and I was saying thank you to the other side. And I was saying, you know, I appreciate you being in my life and I feel you here. And I love the fact that you just saved my life and I'm here to, to serve you and to do good things. So thank you. And so I was saying that, and you know, it was pretty amazing. I ended up that night, I had a boyfriend that um, we had, we're in high school together. And he told me years later that that evening I had told him all about that, what had happened. And he said, you know, he felt really amazed by it. And he said, you know, that helped him with parts of his life when things were happening to ask for help for, you know, whatever it was that he was going through. Um, A recent one that happened was pretty shocking to my current husband and I'm married to a, a seven foot tall ex NBA basketball player that you met, and he's just a super good guy. And and so we were driving back from San Francisco about five years ago, and I had done four talks up in San Francisco about my near death experience. And my husband was driving our our Toyota van, and we were just about thirty miles north of Santa Barbara. And it's called the Gaviota Coastline. And the freeway comes from inland and it hits the ocean and it turns left and it starts going down towards Santa Barbara. And it's very dark there because there's no street lights or anything. And it's right along the ocean. It's beautiful. So I was looking out the window. I was in the passenger seat and I had my seat re- you know, laid back and I was looking out the window at the moon and the stars and just happy to be almost home. And And uh, there was really gusty wind, which happens up there a lot. And I could feel, you know, the car kind of jerking against the gusts of wind. But all of a sudden, this huge gust 
hit the side of our van. And since I was laying backwards, I could see my husband's hands on the steering wheel and he was struggling mm -hmm. to keep the van under control. His hands were just shaking and he was just going like this. And I went, oh, Victor, I think that we should slow down from 65 and like do 50 because those gusts, I mean, we could go out of control. He goes, I, I agree. We're going 50. Mm -hmm. So we're going along for another five minutes or so. And all of a sudden, in my ear that was on the side of the ocean, I hear danger, big impact, danger, big, actually, this says danger, big impact ahead, danger, big impact. And so I was like, okie dokie. And I sat up in my chair, got it upright, put my seatbelt really nice and tight against me. So that in case we did hit something, I wasn't going to, you know, have a problem. And then I turned to Victor and I said, you know how I sometimes hear things from the other side? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I just heard danger, big impact ahead, danger, big impact. So something up ahead, whether it's a tree that's fallen down or a car that's gone out of control, something's dangerous. We need to slow down further. Let's do 30 miles an hour. And he looked at me and he goes, Barbara, we're on the freeway. We can't do 30. And I turned around and looked through the back of our van and I said, Victor, no one's behind us. No one's going to care if we're doing 30. If you see somebody coming and catching up to us um, with their lights, you know, in the dark, then go ahead and speed up a little bit until they pass us. But we gonna, we're going to need slowdown time. So please. And he goes, okay, I can do that. So we're going along at 30. And weirdly, no one catches up to us. This is the way from the north to get into Santa Barbara. There's just, this is, this is usually a very busy freeway. So what I didn't know and he didn't know was that the California Highway Patrol had closed the freeway behind us mm. because of what was up ahead. Mm. So as we went around this corner, um, way maybe 10 minutes later, we went around this big corner and I saw a police car's lights. And I knew right then that that was where the danger was. Mm. So we uh, were doing 30 miles an hour in the slow lane. And the first thing that we noticed was that the police car was stopped blocking the slow lane he his car was in the slow lane blocking it so we as we started approaching closer and closer I thought why isn't the policeman anywhere nearby if his car is here and it's stopping you know in the slow lane what where's the policeman and just as Victor started to change lanes to go around the police car and went into the fast lane um, whoever it was on the other side decided that I needed more warning. So they grabbed my upper arms. I literally felt a hand grip both of my upper arms. And he saw the vision of a shimmering kind of face in front of me. And I heard 10 miles an hour really loud. And that freaked me out because that, you know, the hands on my upper shoulders, the little shimmery face, 10 miles an hour, I was freaked. And I turned to Victor and I said, 10 miles an hour and echoed it. And he slowed down immediately from 30 to 10. So that right when we got to the police car level with it, we were doing 10 and, you know, still didn't know what the danger was. We rolled past the police car, maybe 30 to 40 feet. I don't know. I don't know my feet very well. But then our lights finally lit up the semi truck that was cross the freeway blocking both lanes of the freeway and it was off to the right side towards the ocean as well and the bottom of the truck was facing us so there were no reflectors or anything and so 
Victor doing 10 miles an hour was able to go off the left side of the road. There was some gravel over there and he went around the front of the truck and on the far side, I looked up and there was the police officer standing on the side of the truck. And so we continued down the freeway and, you know, we missed the whole big deal. And about 10 minutes later, I, I immediately started saying thank you to the other side. And about 10 minutes later, my husband finally says, Barbara, how is it that that just happened? He said, if I had not been here visually seeing all of that, and he said, I never would have believed it. He said, how did that just all happen? And I said, because the other side has got the capacity to help us. And if we listen, it's not intuition that is our own. It's their thought or their process going into us and that we think that it's us thinking that but it's not us intuition is not ours it's them helping us mm -hmm. so um it was really amazing and we avoided that whole accident and he was freaked out and he he actually ended up going online and some photographer had gone up and actually took a picture of the truck and he gave that to me as a gift and he said you know this was a really big deal for me to be able to understand and believe when you're saying something that mm -hmm. you're it's beyond you it's you're it's coming from the other side so wow. yeah That's those cool. are some of the incidents those are just a few <laughs> um and so what when you were saying about how um you it's just like it happened yesterday you can remember when you had your near-death experience yeah. that it's so vivid now i have um i haven't had that happen to me but i'm often uh at nighttime astral i i'm out in the astral and i wouldn't in um it just happened the other night i mean so in those kind of incidents well there was one there was one incident maybe three years ago now, I was, uh, I, I had slept a lot of times, I was still married and my husband would watch TV late or snore, whatever. So I'd go sleep on the couch and I was in the living room and there always seemed to be a lot of activity in that living room of, of spirits and, and, and I, I get, um, uh, sleep paralyzed, sleep paralysis, and I would oh, be wow. held down and pushed down and, and all of this. But one night, all of a sudden, I, it was like I was in another part of the living room, like up, up above, lying, floating above the couch. And I and I just started yelling out for my spirit guide, Thomas. My spirit guide's mm -hmm. Thomas. Thomas, Thomas, Thomas. I don't know why. And I looked in the corner of the uh, living room, uh, dining room, and there he was. This is the first time I ever saw him. He was standing really tall all the way up to the ceiling, and he had this dark hair, and he had a, he had a light coming, shining at me, this light. He was looking at me, and this light was shining, flashing at me, like to say, I'm here. And I was like, oh, my God. And I've seen my dad, met my dad on the astral plane in my room. I felt myself uh, fall out of my body. And the, uh, there's been beings coming into my bed sometimes. One night, my dog was in LA with my husband. It wasn't, she wasn't even up here in Seattle, but I was in bed and all of a sudden I feel this, the uh, blanket kind of moving, like rustling. And I was thinking, oh, it's the dog. And I'm like, wait, no, she's not here. And I'm like, to, in my mind, oh crap, who is that? Somebody's coming in the bed. And then my hands were held down and I was paralyzed. And then I just waited, because this happened so many times, I'm just like, come on, you know, let go. And then they let go. They always let go. And so, but the, it's, my point is these, it must be almost like a near death experience because we're out of the body. And I remember those there, I can cite so many of them. And I remember them like they happened yesterday. They're crystal clear. It's not like a dream. A dream would fade. You know, these are small incidents, 
that last a short time and and it's so real and I'm wake, you know. Have you had yeah. do you have any comments about that or had any experiences with that or people talking to you about that? Well, it's those would be called out of body experiences and spiritually transformative experiences because it transforms what you understand about this world. So a near death experience really was uh, misnamed by Raymond Moody. It should have been called a death experience because generally in a near death experience, you have um, your heart is stopped. You're in a car accident where, you know, you're dead in the car or whatever it might be. And you actually rise out of your body and then you go back in again. So um, yours is called an out of body experience, which is a part of the near death experience because we obviously rise out. So, um, but you weren't close to death. So that, that wouldn't, you know, heart wasn't happening unless you, you, unless you have a heart issue that you might, it might've happened, but yeah, it's just, they're really amazing. Mm -hmm. What we understand about this is just starting to come forward. Now, I think that, I think actually that um, maybe ancestrally our really far back relatives understood a lot more about this perhaps than we did. And I don't know how it got closed down to all of us, but I feel that, you know, it hasn't been talked about for centuries. And I think now it's starting to get talked about a lot more. Um, And I, and I, and I believe that a lot of people are experiencing it, but don't talk about it. And that, that is what I find all the time because I have a little, the pin that I normally wear that says NDE and I had them made and I give them to all the experiencers that I, you know, find. And so that they, I say, if you wear this, people will ask you, what does that NDE mean? Yeah. And then you'll get to talk about your story, but you'll also be able to hear them. They'll tell you about their, their mother's story, their aunt's story, their father's story, their brother's story. Literally every time that I end up being out in public and wearing that pin, somebody will tell me about their story. This happens so frequently and a lot of people aren't talking about it, but I really feel that it gives us a better understanding about death and grief and life. And I absolutely love that I had it happen to me. It's the best possible thing that could have uh, come from that situation. It allowed me to leave. It gave me the power to realize that I needed to leave that abusive husband. And then I gained a really nice one. So you did. This is a great also as me as a matchmaker and coach, I do also talk a lot about um, narcissistic abuse and, you know, living, getting out of those situations. And, and uh, so this is also a good example. Any women watching this, who's in this situation or, you know, look, you could, you could, your back was injured. You can be killed. I mean, you, you luckily you had this magical experience from it. It turned out better, but it's, it's dangerous. So we have to, as women have that, just that reach out to somebody, have that resolve that um, I will leave. And you promised that being whoever it was that God or your angel or whatever, just, I, I will do it. I will get that strong promise enough. was the difference. When I made that promise, I knew I'd promised someone either God or, you know, one of my angels or somebody. And I carried through with it. It took me three years to safely get away from him. Mm. I actually had, he'd, he'd um, done a lot of insurance on me and I was, considering the fact that he might actually kill me and make it look like an accident. 
So I was really scared for those three years. I did everything the way that he wanted it to be done. I pretended as though everything was okay. And I bided my time until he finally went on a business trip and I put him, you know, took him to the airport and, uh, you know, kissed him goodbye and he knew he was going to be gone for a week. And I made my escape and I had just incredible moment when I, I looked for five, I found five different apartments that I could afford on my salary. And I knew that then I would have the capacity of having my salary because I he had been confiscating my salary every month and giving me a stipend mm. of like $25. So when I needed to get my hair cut or something, I had to save it up for like three months to get a, a haircut. And it was really sad. And um, he was just, it just, it was really traumatic. And so what ended up happening was that I, um, found this wonderful apartment and I the first four people that I went to look at the apartment said no you can't move in because I only had $800 saved up and that was the amount of the apartment rent but I didn't have the deposit saved up and so I told them once I have my salary coming directly to me I can give you $100 a month and I'll pay that off in eight months if that's okay with you I'm leaving a very traumatic dangerous situation please and the first four people said no yeah. and the fifth one looked at me it was an older man and he looked at me and he just sat there with these really calm eyes and he looked at me and then it looked like he was thinking and then he said Yes, you can move in. And I burst into tears. And I said, why are you trusting me? The first four people today didn't trust me. Why are you trusting me? And he looked at me and he said, I grew up in the Netherlands during World War II. And he said, my parents had people knocking on their door um, very frequently that were Jewish people running from Germany. And he said they would need a blanket or they would need food or they would need a place to sleep overnight or they needed some sort of help. And my parents helped every single one of the groups that knocked on our door. And he said, today, I'm helping you in honor of my parents. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Yeah. To find that one person. He was my friend the whole two. He and his wife. And I introduced when I met my husband. I would have never met my seven foot tall husband. He lived half a block away. Our children met and they were the ones that put us together. And we ended up we've been married 30 years now. I would have never met him had I been in any of the other four apartments. So you can see how life is. Everything is divinely uh, magically planned. Yes. And so what, but what happened when your husband came home from that trip? I mean, did he, he must've gone nuts? Did he track you down? Um, I had filed a restraining order against him with the, with the department police department. And he knew that he wasn't to come within 800, I think it's 800 mm-hmm. feet of me or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, yeah, so I got, got through the divorce. Um, and he mo- ended up moving away ended up marrying his, uh, secretary (laughs) and moved away and I was happy to not have him in Santa Barbara anymore I actually have forgiven him and when I see him because my daughter is his daughter Mm. um, she's not very close to him but when I have had to see him um, I've always been very nice to him and I don't reflect any negative stuff so I've let it go And uh, it was traumatic back then, but it's, you know, it's over with and I survived it and it's good. And and you had mentioned that you said to the bean uh, when you were out of body, I need to to go back. My children need me. And I think about there's a lot of uh, people who women who are abused and then they're 
also in your situation, but they don't go back. They're, they they die, are actually killed mm -hmm. and they do have children. So it's interesting to think why some get to go back and some don't. And It could be that um, those children, you know, in their lives, um, I, I believe that we plan our lives before we even get here and that we choose the people that are going to be playing different roles in our lives. So perhaps in those situations, those children chose to, you know, not have that person come back in their life and have to struggle through whatever it was on their own. I, you know, I don't know the whole right. story of everything. I, I, I just have my pieces that I feel resonate yeah. for me. And, and so that's it. And, um, do you have some psychic abilities too? Like if people to read them kind of, or do you get, if you're um, with somebody, anything opens up or a mediumship or anything like that, or is it more just information for yourself that happen synchronicities well there's you know there's just a feeling sometimes um i i always say that i always hang with the good people i i i choose um positive and loving and kind people and if i you know feel that there's somebody that's not showing that then i stay away from them okay. so um you know, I just, I, the, the most amazing things have happened in my life. I, I call it the amazing life of a double dead redhead. Oh, I love it. Did you write <laughs> that? Yeah, so I, That's I swear I have <laughs> had, yeah, I've had the most incredible things. One of them was kind of cool. I'll tell you, when I worked at the University of California, Santa Barbara, I was in the Graduate School of Education. And I loved my job, loved my boss. My husband worked there on campus for 36 years, my current husband. And we loved being gauchos. We were just totally loving it. And one morning, um, my youngest son that I had with my current husband, he was about third grade. And I went in to wake him up. And as I was standing in my living room, uh, there's a big picture window that looks out towards uh, the hills behind Santa Barbara. And as I was walking past it, there was a feeling like a grip on the back of my head, like someone was going like that. Well, I stopped and I thought, am I having a stroke? Is that what a stroke feels like? Should I sit down? Should I call out for Victor? It's going to scare the kids. I'm a, I was thinking of all this stuff and I'm standing there going, you know, Ooh, what, what's, 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 I actually put my hands up to my head. And when I brought them down, I had goosebumps all over my arms. And so I was like, what's going on? What's happening? You know, and it's freaking freaked out a little bit. And all of a sudden, this big voice in my living room goes, you will have a scrapbook store. <laughs> I did not scrapbook. I had no idea of that. I had no interest in it. I was like, what? And I turned <laughs> and looked at the ceiling and I said, God, are you talking to me because... <laughs> You know what? I think you might have the wrong house, wrong neighborhood yeah. or something, because oh that's God. not me, you know. And so no answer, no nothing. So I went running into my husband and he was in our walk-in closet and he's, you know, super tall. So I'm like, guess what just happened? Blah, blah, blah. And I tell him and he looks down at me and he goes, Barbara, I think that if you got that big of a message, you should see what it's going to take to get you there. And I went, What? We don't, we have two kids in college. We have another one going there next year. It's just no extra money to start a retail store. I don't even want to do that. And so then I looked back up at him again and 
I was pretty astonished when it wasn't his voice when his mouth opened. It was the voice from the living room. And it said, Barbara, you're the one that received the message. <laughs> and I just went. I that guess came I'm out of out of your husband's mouth like it that. Came out of my husband's mouth. Yeah, and I was like, "What was that voice?" Wow, he was channeling. He was channeling the message. I totally freaked me out, and I went over and sat on the bed. I was like shaking, and I was like, "Going like this, you know." And he came over and he said, "What? What's wrong?" And I said, "I, I, I just, I can't. No, I can't talk right now. I just, you know, can, can you fix breakfast for the kids and take care of things this morning?" And he said, "Sure." So. They came in, kissed me goodbye with our youngest son and drove to school. And, and I was late to work. So I'd, I had called my boss and said, I'm going to be a little bit late today. And so he said, no problem. And so I got in around 10 o'clock at the university for two hours. I was getting off at noon that day because I'd arranged to leave early. And uh, so I, I for two hours, I sat there doing my stuff at my desk. But I was talking to God the whole time going, you know, I have no clue as to why you would want me to do a scrapbook store. I don't even get that so then I was in my car and I was driving downtown after I got off at, at noon and inside my car this another voice said you need to stop and ask about a business loan mm. and I'm like in my car going will you guys identify who you are and tell me what's going on today you know like hello I'm kind of behind the eight ball on this one and so the bank that I banked at was like a block and a half ahead of me. So I went ahead and pulled into the bank and I sat in my car and I said, okay, God, I said it in my head because I didn't want people to see me talking to myself. Yeah. And I said, um, you know, I'll go into the bank and I'll ask about a business loan, but does not mean I'm going to have a scrapbook store. Yeah. So I went in and I asked who to talk to and I got directed to this guy and I introduced myself. And then I, he asked me, what do you want to use a business, your business loan for if you get one? And I didn't want to say a scrapbook store because it seemed dorky to me. So I said, well, I'd like to uh, build a paper art store. Mm. And he said, oh, okay, and how much do you want to borrow? Well, how would I know? I have no idea. So I looked at him and I kind of had this look on my face and I said, I don't know. How much do you think it's going to take to open a paper art store? And he didn't think that was funny. And his face just completely closed over. And he said, Mrs. Bartolome, you need to approach the bank when you have a business plan in hand. Right. And I said, oh, I'm sorry for wasting your time today. I'll, you know, consider it further. And thank you so much. And I got up and just wanted to get out of there. And as I was walking through the bank, the voice from the car, the business-like voice goes, now, wait a minute. You cannot give up that easily. You need to go back and ask someone else. And I'm like, uh, so I said, you guys are not making it easy on me. I said this inside my head. Why don't you, I'm going towards that exit over there where my car is parked outside. Why don't you, if there's, there's four people in those cubicles right there, if you want me to talk to somebody, why don't you indicate which one it is I'm supposed to talk to. Mm -hmm. So I'm walking through the cubicle when I'm kind of like surreptitiously looking at the side there. Is she going to talk to me? No. Okay. No, she's not going to talk to me. Okay. Not him. Okay. And the last guy that I looked at was writing something on his desk. He was like 32 years old, writing something on his desk. And the second I looked at him, he went. <laughs> and I actually said in my head, oh shit, that means I have to talk to him. Yeah. So I went over to his door and I said, you know, I, who I was. And I said, I, 
I don't know what a business plan consists of, and I've never investigated that. Is that like a city college course that I should take, or is it a software program that would help me to create one of those? I, I'm thinking of doing a, a business. And he said, uh, do you want to sit down? Do you have your accounts here? And so he said, can I see your ID? And so uh, he said, I'll tell you what a business plan is and how it works and everything. I said, okay. So I sat down. He was looking at his computer. He was talking about all the aspects of a business plan, your first year build out, your five-year build out, blah, 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 blah. And about 10 minutes into it, um, he says, Mrs. Bartolome, um, can you hold on for just a moment? I'll be right back. And I said, sure. And I watched and he went two cubicles down and he talked to a lady and they looked at her computer for two minutes. And then he turned and he started walking towards me. And I thought, you know, aren't we done? You know, I'm kind of done. And uh, I stood up and I had my purse and I was ready to leave. I was in the hallway and he goes, walks up to me and he goes, Mrs. Bartolome, you've been approved for a $250,000 loan to start your paper art store. Mm. Do you want to come in tomorrow and sign paperwork for that? Wow. And so I called my husband and he was at the university and he didn't even question it. He said, sure, what time? So literally opened my store about uh, a month or two later and I had it for six years. I was named businesswoman of the year for Santa Barbara. Oh I would God. have guessed. And you I had this beautiful, yeah, beautiful place. So, um, you know, it was the other side was doing all that. It wasn't me. I, I didn't have an interest in it, but. I saw how many times people came into my store were really helped by making a card for their loved one or making a scrapbook about their mother's life or, yeah. you know, their children's birth year, or, you know, things like that. It was just a really positive store. I had big tables that people could work at. So I got to know the people that came in and we were very successful until the recession of 2009 kicked its butt. So, yeah. and, and now I do the IANS um, group here in Santa Barbara and just love it. So and do you have a website for people to connect with you your, yourself or what? How yeah, well, yeah, there's the IANS website for Santa Barbara and it's www.iandssb.com. Okay. And then the big website for IANS, you know, the big organization is www.iands.org, I-A-N-D-S.org. And then there's also the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation's website, which is nderf.org. So mm -hmm. all of those have lots and lots of stories. Um, the people's, you know, their information about when they had their near-death experience is all written out and you can read it. And there, it's, it's, there's just a lot of information in there on both of those websites for anyone who has any interest in it. And then, of course, when you Google uh, you know, online, there's tons of podcasts and there's so many people. One of the podcasters that I really love is Anthony Chin, C-H-E-N-E, -E, and he's from France and he he does wonderful videos of near-death experiences stories. So check oh, them out. Okay, I'll check Anthony out. And um, gosh, Barbara, thank you for sharing all this amazing, magical stories and your experiences appreciate it so much. And everybody, if you've had an experience, leave it in the comments. I want to hear because I'm sure a lot of you who watch this have had your own experiences or heard about it. And so until next time, everyone, much love. Much love. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. If you love this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes and hit the subscribe button. For more inspiration and to stay connected, Find me on Instagram at The Mystical Matchmaker 
or my website, marlamartinson.com. Much, much love and hope you have a mystical, magical day.